from One World Trade Center in Manhattan, overlooking dozens of golf courses that will never have us as members, this is the Golf Digest Podcast. Welcome to the Golf Digest Podcast. I'm Ryan Harrington, Deputy Editor of GolfDigest.com. The U.S. Open is still seven weeks away, but it's not too early to start thinking about Oakmont Country Club and this year's second men's major. No doubt our guest on this week's podcast has already given some serious thought to what will be taking place at Oakmont in June. Paul Azinger will be working the Open for the first time as an analyst for Fox Sports. After ending in the early 2000s, a highly successful playing career in which he won 12 PGA Tour events, including the 1993 PGA Championship, Paul made a smooth transition to the broadcast booth, offering frank and honest commentary and stints with ABC and ESPN before being hired by Fox earlier this year as it enters the second year of its TV deal with the USGA. Azinger's first broadcast with Fox will come in May when he's working with his new partner Joe Buck at the U.S. Amateur Four Ball Championship. Azinger got a chance to preview Oakmont earlier this week during the U.S. Open Media Day at the club, so he has a, a very good sense of the test of this course and, and what it's going to pose to players right now. Without further ado, here's Paul. Paul, thanks for joining me on the Golf Digest podcast. I'm happy to do this, yeah. You're not far away from the, the very first uh, golf broadcast for you with Fox Sports. What are you most looking forward to as you get started with this new group? Well, I, I think having the opportunity to call the U.S. Open is uh, an opportunity to watch somebody make history. And uh, it's just it's a real honor. we got a new crew. There seems to be terrific chemistry. And it's a great second chance at a first impression for Fox. Um, Chambers Bay was a difficult golf course. Couldn't see the golf ball, you know, because of the way the greens were and all that. But Oakmont, it will be different. It's a traditional golf course. They've played lots of U.S. Opens there, um, PGA Championships and what have you. And I think it's going to look terrific on TV. And uh, I can't wait. I can hardly wait to get started. I can imagine. No, has the acclimation process with Fox been? How has that been going? I mean, uh, how, are things different than they were at ESPN? Or I'm curious what the transition's been like because obviously we haven't seen you uh, on TV yet. But but what's it been like since you've been hired? The ESPN crew was so experienced that I didn't really have a real burden or a responsibility to be the idea guy prior to getting there. I really just kind of focused on what I was doing, but with the guys that were producing there at ESPN, and then you had real veteran broad, golf broadcasters in Tariko and Andy North, Curtis and Judy. and I mean, there's just so many good people there. Uh, it, all the work was done when we got there. I, I'm with Fox. I feel like I'm much more of a contributor into making sure there's not things that we've missed. I've got to likely be a little more aware of what the graphics look like, if the graphics are correct. That's that's something Tariko could catch <laughs> bad graphics or inaccurate graphics all the time. So I just feel a little more responsibility to Mark Loomis to just uh, be a be creative and and just kind of be help more helpful prior to getting there. And uh, I didn't have that responsibility at ESPN as much. Mark Loomis is the executive uh, producer for the, the production there. And I'm curious, you know, uh, you're replacing Greg Norman, uh, who seemed to get mixed reviews, obviously, in his one year on the job there. H- has Mark or has anybody from Fox Management given you any specific instructions about what expectations are for you as you settle in? Not at all. You just do what you got to do. I've done this now for 11 years, and I think they're trusting me to, uh, you know, just be a professional and <laughs> 
um, be conversational. We're going to be—I'll be engaging to the people on the ground, whether it's, you know, I guess it's whether it's Scott McCarran, um, and uh, not Andy, <laughs> Curtis Strange, Julie Ingster, uh, whoever's on the ground. I, I think we're going to all be engaging. There's going to be an order as to how we're going to do it. Um, I'm, I just am excited about, you know, getting there and just having a great conversation as we watch somebody's march to history. Yeah. The transition from golfer to broadcaster isn't always an easy one. Why do you think you've been able to make that move as smoothly as you have? I just think that at the beginning, because I played the tour for so long, it was real easy for me. I knew all the players, and it was easy to articulate thought on air and get in and out. I was never bothered by the producer talking in one ear, hearing my voice in the other ear. When the producer says something like, we're going to go to 16 in the middle of my thought, I can continue my thought without Mm -hmm. having to stop. Sometimes it's not as easy as people think, Uh, but for me it was natural. I was never nervous. Now I'm a little more anxious and nervous (laughs) about it because I've been disconnected from the players for a few years. Um, But in the end, golf is golf. um, My philosophy is to let the picture be descriptive, and then I'll try to be informative. And uh, my wife reminds me every, every time before we go on air, she goes, now remember, nobody's turning, tuning in to hear you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the difficult part of being an analyst is, is being fair, but also being critical of the players when, when it's called for. How have you tried to straddle that line? Because I think you've gotten uh, compliments for being able to do that fairly well. I actually marvel at today's players. It's, they're different than... We were, uh, we we could hear the shot and we could use our eyes. Today's player, you know, that's how we evaluated mm-hmm. how we were doing. You could see your divot, you could hear the shot. Today they have that and a whole lot more. Now they have track man and they can see their spin and their ball speed and their launch angle and all that. It's become a mathematical formula in some respect. And uh, while track man can be the devil, it can also provide the aha moment. Sure. And uh, I, I just am amazed at the ability of the players to take on challenges, to go for massive hang time on a driver at the risk of being offline one or two degrees and making double bogeys. Well, a player can make a mockery of a, of a hole by taking on a dog leg, but they can also make double or triple bogey while attempting it. And uh, my philosophy was that golf was to be played close to the ground. When I watch these guys now and see that them launching the driver at 12 to 17 degrees off the tee, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think it is incredibly brave. So um, I may criticize a decision a player makes, but I'm not going to go after him personally. I realize that uh, while golf is simple, it's not easy. And I just think that these guys today are absolutely remarkable. It's an interesting coincidence that for your first U.S. Open as an analyst, you'll, you're going to be coming to Oakmont, which, if, if I've done my research right, was also where you made your U.S. Open debut as a player in 1983. Uh, I, I won't belabor the result for our listener uh, from you at, at that uh, Open, but, but what are your memories from that tournament? Well, I remember that day one there was a big delay, and my tee time was 6.33 p.m., <laughs> and I was only able to play nine holes came out the next day and played 27 to miss the cut badly. But it's not my first U.S. Open as an analyst. It'll be my first as an analyst on the Saturday or Sunday, but 
and ABC or ESPN have done the U.S. Open. I've done it ten times on Thursday, Friday. So I've got that part down. Forgive me. I should have recalled that, obviously. So. Yeah, well, I, you know, that's just – people don't remember. We, we covered the U.S. Open for a long, long time, and uh, we gave it up on the weekend to NBC. But we were there Thursday, Friday, and uh, I love the event. I think it's the ultimate challenge. I think it's the hardest tournament to win. It's the easiest tournament to get claustrophobia. <laughs> and you, you've got to be able to be free and swing free and be brave or you can't play well at the US Open. Well, you say it's the hardest tournament to win. And I'm, I was going to ask this question because, you know, everyone talks about how patient you have to be, how par is your friend, how you got to accept bogeys. How difficult is that, though, for players these days where the, the mindset just seems to be so aggressive at times? And, and week in and week out, you're going for birdie so much. Uh, you know, from your perspective as a player and then obviously now as an analyst, can you tell us you know, what it's like to try to almost gear back a little bit to be able to play uh, successfully in a U.S. Open? Great players are very aggressive through the hit to whatever target they pick and to whatever club they choose. And the thing about a U.S. Open is that you tend to philosophically have to back off, uh, maybe because the fairways are so tight and the bunkers are so penal, which is going to be the case at Oakmont. Um, so I am always curious as to the philosophy or the strategy somebody's going to take on at a U.S. Open. How brave will you be off the tee? How much, how much of risk are you going to take for a reward that you're going to get? And uh, there's only two par fives there. There's probably only going to be about six, five, six, maybe seven wedge opportunities. And I think the best recovery shots at this U.S. Open are going to be around the greens. If you're in the bunkers, it's going to be hard to get out of the bunker. Um, the rough isn't going to be so severe, but most misses off the tee are going to end up in the sand. Um, I, I, I just... Can't wait to see what kind of strategy they're going to take. Somebody like Dustin Johnson, who bombs it, may be neutralized. His power may be neutralized. Sure. Uh, same with Rory, but maybe not. Maybe they're going to just be hitting it like Nicholas Dreams about and free wheel. When it comes to Oakmont specifically, do players love the fact that they're playing such a, a tradition-rich course with so many great champions and, and so much prestige to it? Or or do you think, to a, a little bit of an extent, they loathe the fact that they're playing such a difficult golf course? Uh, you know, that reputation uh, precedes itself and, and for a reason. It's likely that Oakmont, day in and day out, is the most difficult course in the country. They arguably are the fastest greens in the country, in the world maybe, on a regular basis. Day in and day out, Oakmont is just really, really hard. And I think the players accept that, and there's not going to be a lot of complaining unless the ball's rolling off the green because <laughs> they're rolling 15 and the wind's blowing. But all in all, the players accept uh, the, the strategy and the philosophy that the USGA puts in place. And if you don't accept the difficulty of that, See, I think the U.S. Open is the best week of the year to be unflappable, uh, not let anything bother you, bad breaks and what have you. But uh, I think the players are very aware of the difficulty of Oakmont, and they will embrace it or they'll hate it. <laughs> At the risk of an obvious answer being somebody who has a really good short game, does Oakmont suit a particular type of player? I mean, and, uh, who do you perhaps like there this year? The U.S. Open, it's critical to put the ball in play off the tee. And you have to have a brilliant short game. I, I like Jordan Spieth every week. You know, he proves otherwise in these majors. He's two win-win 
second, second, second. While he maybe should have won the Masters, he didn't. But uh, he's an unbelievable player, and until somebody can dethrone him in these majors, I think Jordan Spieth is going to love Oakmont. Well, in the short game he's got, too, obviously does seem to suit him uh, very well to be a, a contender there. You have to be really smart at Oakmont. You have to be very aware of, of trying to stay below the hole. There's a lot of greens that have uh, slope. The greens will cant, I guess they say, from right to left or left to right. And you got to be aggressive to conservative spots on those greens. Below the hole is critical there. But none of that's going to matter if you're not in the fairway off the tee. <laughs> that hasn't been the case the last two U.S. Opens where sure. putting it in play was critical off the tee. Pinehurst and uh, Chambers Bay were a little more forgiving. Mike Davis, the head of the USGA, setting up the course and what have you, he, his philosophy is that there are more double bogeys made if you give the player a chance to reach the green from the rough versus just hacking it out. Mm-hmm. And I like that. I've always said the most exciting shot in golf is the recovery shot. USGA is giving the players an opportunity to recover from a missed fairway. But at Oakmont, that's really not likely to be the case. If you miss the fairway, you're going to be in deep, deep trouble. So uh, put it in play off the tee, and you better chip and putt your butt off. <laughs> Phil Mickelson's been a six-time bridesmaid at the U.S. Open, and, and with a win in this major, obviously he can achieve the career Grand Slam. Um, what do you think about his chances of getting it done at Oakmont? I think Mickelson has a great opportunity here because his short game can be put on display. Uh, Mickelson, it'll be interesting to watch and see what kind of a philosophy or strategy Mickelson has. There's only two par fives at Oakmont. I think that will neutralize the big, giant power hitters because one of the par fives can't, you cannot even reach the fourth hole, I believe, is reachable, mm-hmm. a reachable par five. Um, all in all, the guys, the best wedge players, really don't have a great advantage here. You're going to just have to put it on the fairway and be the best around the greens to win at this tournament. And I think Mickelson's probably has a great opportunity to put it in the fairway because he's going to be laying up off the tee some, not having to hit his driver. Sure. And he's brilliant around the green. If not if not this year for Phil, will it ever be in the cards, do you think, for him to hold, hold the uh, U.S. Open trophy? I believe, yes. Mickelson's one of those guys that can win major championships well into his 50s. Bernard Langer and Tom Watson proved that. Mickelson's swing hasn't shortened any. Mm-hmm. He's still aggressive, and he seems to still have tremendous desire to do it. And uh, I, I just don't think there's any need to put a time limit on Phil Mickelson's potential. But I, I see him well into his 50s still being able to contend. Do you think we'll see Tiger Woods playing at Oakmont this year? I hope so. I really hope Tiger can get a couple tournaments under his belt and uh, you know knock out any cobwebs that might be in his head or you know his game. You remember when Tiger went out, he was hitting it poorly anyway. Probably fairly confused about you know how that right that big right miss and that hook. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just hope Tiger can simplify what has been made very complicated for Tiger. He he kind of went from artist to engineer. And the engineer wasn't as good. And uh, I, if I were talking to Tiger, I'd just say, "Listen, Tiger, the only thing causing that ball to hook is side spin, and just challenge him to con- you got to control your side spin again, yeah. man, and just make it simple for Tiger because he's a shot maker. See, I, it, you, there's a, it's either the swing makes the shot or the shot makes the swing. And Tiger fell into this trap where he's thinking the swing makes the shot, mm-hmm. when in reality, golf is a numbers game. And you know how many different shot how many different shots can you play with a nine iron to different yardages? If you got a yardage, 
then the shot obviously is making the swing. You can hit nine iron one thirty five, one fifty. Sure. Um, so the shot makes the swing, and I feel like the guys that allow themselves to to get into deep slumps, they somehow adopt a philosophy that the swing makes the shot. They get all swing conscious, and I think that's uh, that's going to cause you to trend downward big time. Do you? What do you think? We'll see with a return from him. I mean, do you think he will be able to get back? And if he's able to button up some of those things that you just suggested, could he get back to the form that we once saw where he's winning regularly on the PGA Tour, if not winning majors? I'm, you know, this isn't non-committal, but I wouldn't <laughs> be surprised if Tiger never played again, mm-hmm. and I wouldn't be surprised if he won a major. Sure. And everywhere in between. He's only 40 years old. You never forget how to win. Once you've been there before... You know how to do it, and who knows better than this generation of players than Tiger Woods. I hope Tiger comes back. I'd love for these guys to feel a little bit of, of what the guys felt when Tiger was dominant, mm-hmm. and I'm pulling for him. Everybody, I think, that, that loves watching golf is rooting for Tiger Woods to make a comeback, and uh, I just hope that he can make it simple. Golf is e- Golf is simple, but it's just not easy, <laughs> and I want him to keep the game simple in his head if he can and then recognize nothing came easy for tiger yeah. he, everybody you know that doesn't know anything about golf says oh yeah well he was been groomed for it since he was a kid doesn't make it easy tiger earned everything he ever got through hard work and an incredible mindset and if for him to be great again he's going to have to readopt the same work ethic and the same mindset and uh, he has the potential to win any any week he shows up from now till the end of time. You mentioned this next generation of players. They've kind of in his place. You know, uh, some of these young guys have impressively stepped up and, and given given us hope, at least, that there is golf after Tiger, obviously. Um, what has been your impression of the Ricky Fowlers, the Jordan Spieths, this younger generation that seems to come in and, and asserted themselves? Well, I just think they're brave. I think they figured out it's not so much what these guys think far as I'm concerned, because no two swings have ever looked the same. What difference does it make what they think? Uh, the secret is, is how they think. I want to know how they think. And I kind of, I think I already know. I think we all know. Grid players think fairly the same. You, you know, you have to drive it, wedge it, putt it. And uh, you have to swing with certainty. And these guys are able to do it in the utmost pressure. Um, it's a different world, though. They're, they're much more into the numbers. They've, they've got a track man sitting behind them if their numbers are off they can they can see why uh pretty instantly i i think that, that's pretty cool but i wonder if tiger was the last intimidator now with social media these guys are all congratulating <laughs> each other they high five each other when they're making putts to beat them and we never used to do that tiger used to wear you know he'd wear black pants and a shirt to color of blood and that was intimidating now now but that was pre you know twitter sure uh, it's just different. I still think it's great, though. I marvel at this generation's ability to play this game. Um, I'd like to know. I'd like to to know if there ever will be another intimidator like Tiger Woods. Yeah, you, you, we saw obviously with Ricky Fowler and Spieth and Justin Thomas and Smiley Kaufman that group vacation they took uh, recently to the Bahamas and, and broadcasting all of it, like you said, through social media and whatnot. Were you surprised at that, given the way, obviously, as you said before here, that the competitive instincts at times would think that maybe they wouldn't be as friendly off the course? I'm curious what your take was on seeing you know, them all just hanging out and taking it easy. I'm not sure that other 
players haven't done that in the past, sure. but they just never documented <laughs> it. And these guys documented it. There's a big part of it is brand building for them. I thought it was really cool that they let us into their vacation like that. And uh, the whole shirts off thing, I thought they were hilarious. You know, they were <laughs> probably drinking a little bit, which is fine. You got to let, you know, golf's hard, man. I mean, it's, it's, it's just a stressful game. It, your mind never shuts off. You know, Jordan has his safe house at Augusta or whatever tournament he's in where you can't talk about golf, but you can't shut off Jordan's mind. It, you cannot stop thinking about it. It is a, an obsession that uh, consumes your thoughts and it, cons- it, it consumes your feel. You, you feel whether you're going to hit it good tomorrow, uh, right now. You know, if I'm, I feel like I'm going to go hit it good this afternoon, I'm going to go play. I can feel it in my body. Yeah. And, you know, imagine what Tiger must have felt if I can feel it. Well, imagine what Nicholas must have felt and Billy Casper and uh, Sneed and Hogan and those guys. What did they feel? What does Fred Couples feel that he can still hit it great every day? It's a feeling. We, anyone can remember their thoughts, but the guy with the best feel comes out on top. What was interesting for me to see these guys doing that was the fact that, yeah, you know, we've, and, and your Ryder Cup hat is where I'm going to ask this question, is that we've heard all about how the Europeans are better suited for the Ryder Cup because they're just this closer bunch, you know, that they hang out and whatnot. And, and actually for me to see these guys hang out a little bit kind of suggested to me, you know, that's not going to be a very good excuse anymore for the Americans in the Ryder Cup. It, it, does it, you know, you know, is it a good thing to see some of these Americans coming together, so to speak, off the course and, and having that camaraderie in, in the sense that maybe down the road as we see them play against Europe in the Ryder Cup, uh, they're going to feel more like a team. I never thought that that was an accurate assessment, that they were closer than us or more bonded than us. Mm-hmm. I will say that I felt Europe always did have – well, I say this. The Ryder Cup, for whatever reason, is in their blood. And for us, it's in our head. We think about Ryder Cup. But for them, it's in their heart, and they bleed Ryder Cup. They love it. And they have a chip on their shoulder because of their tour, and we're the Americans. And it's hard to beat chip on your shoulder guy when chip on your shoulder guy gets motivated. And uh, love of the game guy doesn't beat chip on your shoulder guy all the time. So I don't know. I I have felt philosophically that that we needed to – make our guys more sold out in small groups because it's hard for 12 to bond. Europe has small groups naturally. The Irishmen play together. The Spaniards play together. Mm -hmm. The Englishmen are always paired together. The Swedes are paired together. That's naturally, that's small groups. And it makes it easy for them to make their pairings, and that's an advantage. But they do have a chip on their shoulder, and they bleed Ryder Cup. And no matter what, from now, you know, until the Ryder Cup ends, they're going to be difficult to beat. U.S. better be ready, and there's no shortcut to success. You can't hope for it or wish for it. You got to prepare, and so uh, I think that for the U.S. to win this next Ryder Cup, they're going to have to know the course better than the Europeans. They're going to have to embrace the crowd, go show off for the crowd, and uh, hopefully Davis can get the right people together and create a little chemistry. With golf being played in the Olympics this summer, uh, the tour schedule's awfully crowded, and a few notable players have already announced that they're going to be skipping the trip to Rio. Uh, as a former player, can you help listeners understand the issues that these guys are facing right now in terms of trying to balance their schedule, trying to be ready for majors, trying to be ready for the Ryder Cup? There just is so much going on that uh, should we be surprised that maybe some of these guys have pulled out uh, from the Olympics and just saying it, it, it's probably too much? 
I'm actually very surprised that anybody would announce that they're pulling out of the Olympics. It's not a great PR move. And it's an opportunity to win a gold medal. And I think, you know, it's only going to come once every four years. Mm-hmm. I just feel like you ought to have that opportunity. Uh, you ought to take advantage of that opportunity, I should say. Um, so I'm, I'm, it's just a terrible PR move to announce you're going to pull out of, of the Olympics and represent your country. I don't think any uh, anybody from Australia is going to understand why Adam Scott won't represent Australia, and he'll he'll be criticized for that for a long, long time. But Adam Scott is prioritizing something different, and uh, it's it's major championships, obviously, and he doesn't like the way that that it fits into his schedule. So, you know, these guys are all want to create a legacy. They're out to make history. The money's not the issue anymore. It's legacy building. And there's nothing better to build a legacy than winning a gold medal. Your passionate play in the Ryder Cup and as captain of the last winning U.S. side uh, makes me think you would have liked the chance to have competed in the Olympics. Yes or no? Yeah, oh yeah. I, I was in World Cup. And, you know, I loved it. I just loved being wrapped in an American flag and doing the best you can possibly do to represent your country. It's not often you get that opportunity to be elevated at any level of any sport to be able to represent your country, I think you should take advantage of that. And uh, that's that. You know, I feel like qualifying for the U.S. Open is an unbelievable achievement. Mm-hmm. And if once you've qualified for a U.S. Open, you have always been a, played in a U.S. Open at your home club. Oh yeah, he played in the U.S. Open. Pretty good player. It, it's the same with World Cup or Ryder Cup or certainly the Olympics. If you had an opportunity to play in the Olympics. How good were you? Yeah. Oh, very, very good point. Huh? You turned 56 earlier this year, and it's been a while since you've been playing competitively. I'm curious, did you ever give a, a serious thought to playing the Champions Tour after you turned 50? I played four or five times. I just really felt like I wasn't anywhere near the most prepared. And uh, then I got hurt a couple times. You know, I fell off my bike and broke my shoulder going five miles an hour. <laughs> And uh, when I had the metal plate put in my shoulder, that was kind of put the nail in the coffin for me. But I cling to the idea that I might still play. But, you know, it gave me dread to wake up in the morning, pack, and jump on an airplane. I just didn't like it. And 30 years of professional golf was enough. Thankfully, you know, I've got the opportunity to do some television and uh, stay fairly relevant. I can still do some outings periodically, so... Uh, I just don't feel like I'm going to add to my legacy or anything by playing the senior tour at this point in my life. So I shut it down, uh, doing four events a year now for Fox and still get to, uh, you know, fish every morning and get on my motorcycle if I want, head out to the woods, do whatever I want. I really like where I am right now. Well, it sounds like a pretty good life. Uh, Paul, I appreciate you uh, taking uh, some time here and wish you the best of luck uh, with the the first broadcast, the U.S. uh, four ball here in a month, and then obviously on to Oakmont in June. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you all for listening to another episode of the Golf Digest podcast. If you haven't already done so, we hope you go to iTunes and become a subscriber to the podcast so you'll automatically get it downloaded each week. While you're there, uh, we also hope you rate and review the podcast. It'll help us get more uh, listeners out there. We look forward to having you back next week for another episode.